Hi, this is Gillen from Rest Reflections. Welcome to this episode of At Work, our fortnightly podcast on all things inequality, injustice and oppression in the workplace. And as usual, I would like to invite your question, your queries, your dilemma, your comments, your feedback in terms of how we are doing and maybe suggest some topic that you would like us to try to muse on. Please don't hesitate to get in touch. Contact us using at work at restreflections.co.uk or contact at restreflections.co.uk. It would be lovely to hear from you and I always welcome suggestion for reflection. So please don't hesitate. If you have something that you might be struggling with, we can struggle together. I'm not saying that I have all the answers, but certainly I'm willing to give it a little bit of time, a little bit of thinking and see if we can progress your thinking together. So yes, get in touch. Today, what I want to think about is envy. And some of you will follow my work and will read or have been reading Rest Reflections article, Freely Accessible. Now, just a section of those are freely accessible. The rest are, of course, for members because we do need to survive as a social enterprise and writing is quite central to what we do. If you follow my work, you'll know that I've been thinking about envy. I've been musing on envy. I've been writing on envy for some time. In fact, it might well be that I wrote this article, I think in 2000 and might have been 2019. I wrote this article, which I think I entitled neurosis of whiteness, racial violence, and white envy, or something along those lines. Now, this article should still be available. And so I would invite you to have a read through. It was, I think, maybe a little bit of a cornerstone article. In this piece, I essentially extend on Fanon thinking on neurosis, racism, and envy. Now, neurosis in classic analytic theory is phenomenon or processes that occur when we can't confront something in the world or in ourselves or in others because it is too anxiety provoking and so therefore we repress it and so that anxiety expresses itself in some other ways, usually unconsciously. Now, this is what we are talking about when we're talking about neurosis. It's a term that's not really in flavor, not on vogue anymore. If you read classic analytic texts and if you're into analytic or psychoanalytic group analytic thinking, you'll see that we talk a lot about neurotic defenses in particular. There's been some thinking that has been done around neurosis, which is what is repressed 
because of racialization, what is disowned, what is disavowed that leads to internal conflict and oftentimes conflict in the, in the world. And so envy is, I say, as some others have said, is one of those neurotic defenses. I'm thinking that I might be speaking maybe a little bit too academically or a little bit too technically. So let me try if I can simplify what it is that I'm trying to say. So in this article, I say that envy, racial envy, in fact, I make a case for white envy rather than racial envy, because I put in the piece that there is no bi-directionality. And by that, I mean it is not the case that, you know, black people, brown people are envious of white people and white people are envious of black and brown people and then envy flows in all direction. No, that is not my theoretical case. What I am saying is that actually envy flows in one unilateral direction. Certainly when it comes to thinking at group or at collective level. And to understand that case, and again, I would invite you to read the piece if you're feeling a little bit lost, but to understand the case and why I say that envy, racial envy is not bidirectional and therefore white is more accurate to talk about white envy is because I make the distinction like a lot of theoretical thinkers or theorists or analytic practitioners do make the distinction between jealousy and envy. So when we're talking about jealousy, generally what we mean is that we feel a sense of being deprived of something. And so therefore, the correctional, if I can say that, the corrective impulse is to try to seek to possess whatever is triggering feelings of jealousy. So that's what we're talking about. Jealousy, someone has something and we want it. And so therefore, we go and do what we can to seek to possess it. Now, when we're thinking about envy, I say, and maybe a little bit more Kleinian, we're thinking about that sense of being bereft. And so therefore, we see something in someone and we feel that we cannot get that something. And so therefore, the corrective impulse is to destroy what we feel we cannot obtain or possess. So I guess the difference between jealousy and envy, as I see it, certainly centrally when it comes to race relation, is the difference between possession and we might say destruction, or we might even go as far as saying annihilation. So that's the core difference. And so therefore, when it comes to race relation, when it comes to historical racialized configuration, there is really no two-way street. There is simply no history of Black people, brown people, colonized subject, if you prefer, having essentially sought to destroy white people, white culture, having sought to kill or to destroy or to annihilate group because of racial fantasies. I mean, there's no precedent in history, not that group level. However, without getting into the classic colonial and enslavement in story, we do know that the opposite is true. And so there is an important distinction here. Now, 
I don't want to get too theoretical. So again, for the first time, I think I'll invite you to read the piece because here we're here to think about the implication for the workplace and for dynamics in spaces of employment where race is concerned. Why is that important? Firstly, I talk a little bit about that in White Mind. I do more than talk a little bit about envy in White Mind. I have a whole chapter dedicated to White Envy. Some of you might find interesting theoretically, but also understand how I make the case for the centrality of envy in the expression or manifestation of racism and particularly anti-Black racism. I come to that because of my experience, because of my lived experience, having got into difficult, conflictual, if not traumatic experiences, which I knew were racialized. So there was an element which was race-based by way of prejudice and by way of fantasy, definitely. But I thought that there was something that I couldn't quite put my finger on. And it took me a while to actually name that it was envy. And part of what has helped me to do that is, frankly, therapy and very specifically analytic therapy, psychoanalytic psychotherapy and group analysis, which I have had bucket loads of group analytic psychotherapy. And so in this kind of arena, I guess we are less shy to name the more destructive expression of human pathology. And so envy is spoken about in this term. And it was in this setting that, you know, I was encouraged to think about envy, what was going on in my relationship that triggered these feelings of envy. Uh, As an aside, one thing that analytic practitioners always do is to kind of turn the gaze onto the person who is at the receiving end of violence. We do that very, very disturbingly, actually. So even in the case of envy, the question was often, so what do you do that triggers envy? And frankly, I've moved on from that because I realized that envy is something that the white subject is essentially born in. To, I would say, or socializing to as well. It is simply a, a fact of racialized configuration. So, yeah, that's not something that I am going to own, I'm afraid. That doesn't mean to say that as individuals, we can't make a particular social configuration worse, right? But politically or sociopolitically, I would say, really, it's not my job to appease people's envious feeling. My job is to go about living the best life that I can do, being as authentic as I can be in the world and trying to enjoy the time that I have on this earth, doing a very serious job I feel that that's my job. And I think people need to reclaim their brutality, their violence, and as part of that, to reconnect to their envy. That was an aside. I don't want to do that. When I support people who have been affected by white envy, my recommendation, my advice, my guidance is always, how do you make yourself more resilient? How do you look after yourself? And a lot of the time that looking after yourself is going to entail connecting to your power. And unfortunately, connecting to your power is likely to mean connecting to the very thing that you are being envied for. So it makes zero sense for me, at least theoretically, to say to people who are being envied, 
tone it down. <laughs> it's just not going to work. In fact, it's going to make people more vulnerable. And so I say that quite often. You need to lean into your power and you need to seek support and you need to think and you need to reflect and you need to think and you need to reflect with people who are willing to think about the complexity of race and are willing to look at the nastiness that is envy as a dynamic. So what does it look like in the workplace? Well, sometimes it looks like a person of color. And we're talking really here about racialized envy. So some of the dynamics that I'm going to name here, we've already kind of covered them in some previous podcasts. So I would say, for example, issues to do with black or brown authority, how people who are in seniority and who are racialized as black and brown have their authority constantly questioned. And that can be from very little undermining microaggression to full-blown sabotage, right? Where people are going to do the opposite of what they're going to do. They're going to withdraw information, all that to cause chaos or to cause difficulty for the black or the brown manager. Now, by and large, people will rationalize what they're doing and often they will rationalize it on the ground of, well, this person is not competent or I don't trust their judgment or this, that or the other. There will always be a alternative explanation for that dynamic. Because, of course, when we're dealing with the unconscious, we're not aware by definition of what we are doing. That's one thing. Secondly, when it comes to race, it is, of course, no longer socially acceptable to want to say openly, I can't stand taking direction, instruction from someone with black and brown because that is a transgression when it comes to social configuration and when it comes to expectation, social expectation of who is inferior and who is superior. So there is that. So I want you to really bear in mind that the fact that there is alternative explanation does not cancel out the more sinister interpretation. In fact, what I would say is that if you choose when they are equally viable interpretation, explanation for a particular situation, scenario, dynamic, and you choose the least offensive, the least sinister, the least troubling explanation, then there's something about you, which means that you find it very difficult to stay with what is uncomfortable. And I want you to stay with what is uncomfortable. In fact, my work is about supporting people to stay with what is discomforting. Back to deniability, of course, those things can be denied. So I give you the example of Black authority. Another example that I can give you is when people are not congratulated, praised, for work well done, for achievement, for things that they have done that might be out of the ordinary. Now, I'm not going to name names and I'm not going to name places either. But what I'm going to say is that I remember when I did my TED Talk and I remember when I got my contract for White Mind, which is an academic book. Well, it's an academic press in any event. And announcing that quite proudly in particular context and having very lukewarm responses, if not no responses at all. Now, this is a 
big deal, getting a book deal, particularly as a scholar that is a baby scholar, getting an academic book deal is a massive deal. So you would expect that in any setting, particularly in professional setting or in uh, academic setting, that that would be noticed, that that would be marked. But I've been in places where those achievements almost didn't register. It was almost as though I announced that I had won £10 at the lottery or that I had paid my bills on time. I mean, it was really, really troubling to observe the effort that people would go to to even minimise or to ignore what I had achieved. In fact, when it comes to the TED Talk and I was in an academic setting, I remember announcing that to a particular professor and attempting to discuss my idea of epistemic homelessness, which formed the basis of the TED Talk. And having that guy essentially question whether the idea was mine and in fact saying, well, that's not your idea, that's not new, that has stayed with me, that I was a white man, that stayed with me because I was much younger when I did the talk. I mean, much younger, what, was seven years ago, six, seven years ago, I can't remember. But nonetheless, I was a much more junior scholar, academic. And I think, frankly, Even to this day, looking at what I've written and looking at the idea that I've put forth, I think epistemic homelessness is one of the strongest idea framework that I've developed and I'm continuing to develop in my PhD. And so to have this kind of response, the kind of minimalization, and then the kind of low-key accusation that I had plagiarized someone's work or idea in a context of race or racialized dynamics tells you something about what could not be contained. And the idea that me as a black woman and as someone that was much, much more junior than the academic who kind of discounted this achievement speaks of envy. It speaks of something that created so much disturbance internally that the person could not even say congratulations and leave it at that. It had to be discounted. I had to be vilified in some way. At the time, I was quite upset, even though I didn't show upset, because I'm quite good at not showing upset, actually. But I was quite upset at the time. And now looking back, I can clearly see that it linked us to envy. I could tell you about other examples in supervisory contexts where particular individuals start to mimic how you speak or wear what you wear. And it's very difficult. I had a situation as well, and I've written about that. Gosh, I have so much anecdote about white envy. And I had a situation where I was working in a particular place and everybody were afforded their own mug. And I had my own mug. And this particular white woman, she would drink from my mug consistently. I mean, it was a small team. There was just maybe a handful of us, if that, working in that space. So there weren't a lot of mugs around. I accept that. Nonetheless, it was always the same person. And it was also someone that I had supervisory responsibility Towards, so that meant I was someone that was reporting to me, and I was someone that also had surprise, surprise difficulty in accepting my authority. And she used to constantly drink from my mug. I remember being constantly irritated by that to the point where I bought everyone new mugs. And so for maybe a few days, I had peace. And then she started drinking from her mug again. So I think there's something important here about trying to um, 
feeling uncomfortable to say that, but I'm going to say it anyway, because it's part of the dynamic. There's something about that is perhaps wishful thinking. There's something that is perhaps aspirational, but there is something that is also a bit more sinister, right? I always say, and this cannibalistic, because actually what you're trying to do is to almost kind of eating the person that you are envying, right? You so want to be them, but you can't allow yourself to say that you want to be them. And so you have this very bizarre behavior that don't make sense unless you put envy as a lens. And again, we say that envy was attempted to claim something that you think that you can't have. And so you want to destroy it or you want to cause harm. What I want to leave you with is a sense that it is a cornerstone of white supremacy and partly the reason why it is such a cornerstone is because, you know, I mean, racism is all about fantasy and it's all about these avowed feelings, impulses and characteristics, right? So if I say I can't tolerate, say, my own sexuality or sexual feelings or whatever. And I project that onto the other subject. It's going to come to a point where you're going to miss those parts of yourself that you have disowned and you have projected out. You are going to miss them. The trouble is that, of course, because those racialized formation or construction are so loaded in shame and so remain so acceptable, they can't be reclaimed. And if you can't reclaim what you envy, then what you are likely to do is to destroy whatever is envied in whatever you see what you envy. If you are dealing with envy as a person of color, and that's what I'm going to focus on as a person of color in the workplace, the most important thing is to accept it. So you need to accept it for yourself. You need to name it, if only for yourself, and you need to find spaces where people are going to listen to you and encourage you to think about envy. And I think it's quite difficult, actually, particularly outside of analytic thinking, for people to have an open, frank discussion on envy and envious attack. But I'm afraid that I would say the bulk of the racist attack that we see in society, that we see in the workplace, are going to have envy as their foundation. And if you're not prepared to talk about envy, then we're not going to protect people at the receiving end of those attacks. So number one, you need to name it. You need to find space where you are going to be supported to make sense, to think, to reflect. That's the first thing. The second thing, as I said earlier, you need to reclaim, you need to claim for yourself what you are envied for. And I remember incident, I can clearly see it now, where people were envying me for things that I didn't even know I possessed. Sometimes people see things in you that you don't see in yourself. And that makes you even more vulnerable. Because as I said, in order to protect yourself or to attempt to protect yourself from envious attack, you need to lean into your power. You cannot lean into your power if you don't even know what you are envied for. That means you are not even aware of your own power. So that is a problem. And I think that that links us to the kind of social expectation that people of color, particularly women of color, even more so black women, need to be humble. They need to not claim any skills, any attributes, any talent, any aptitude. All that actually makes us even more vulnerable to envious attack. Because trust me, if you have a talent, 
within racialized configuration, if you have a talent, you might not know yourself that you have a particular talent. Others will know it. Those who envy it will see it in you, even if you don't see it yourself. And I've been in this situation. Actually, it helped me to know what I was perhaps good at. But nonetheless, it's important for you to have this level of self-awareness. And these discourses of Black humility and all the nonsense around not claiming our power makes us more vulnerable. So you need to be a bit more self-aware when it comes to your skills, aptitudes and talent. And finally, I would encourage all workplaces to think and to talk about envy. What does it look like? I know it's very uncomfortable. And I cover that in White Mind. We find talking about envy as difficult as we find talking about sex. Of course, there's a connection. Nonetheless, it's important that we can have this conversation. I think one of the things that stopped me over the years not to talk about envy was the fact that, well, if I said that, I feel envy is a factor. What do I look like? Do I look like I'm self-obsessed? Do I look like I'm self-absorbed? Do I look like I'm narcissistic? Do I look like I'm full of myself? All this kind of shaming discourses, they absolutely do not serve marginalized people at all. They don't serve people with less social power. What they do is they justify and they therefore invisibilize a kind of violence that is born out of envy. It's difficult to talk about it, but we do need to talk about it. And so I've learned to talk about it. I talk about it a lot. And when I talk about it and when I write about it, it's very rare that I don't have people of color, black people tell me I recognize that. I've never been able to name it. I see it. I've experienced it all my life. I've seen it. When one transgresses social configuration in relation to, say, expectation of beauty, intelligence, whatever is transgressed by way of the racialized, fantasized order in terms of Black people being last. So let's say if a Black woman is more attractive than society deems Black women to be, or someone with brown is, let's say, more athletic than what society deems or expect them to be. Whenever there is a shift in that fantasized hierarchy, as I said, or stratification, there's going to be not only social ramifications, so therefore often people are going to be punished by institution one way or the other, but also there's going to be envy, white envy triggered. Let me know what you think. I know that often kind of trigger very strong emotions. Usually people are in support. Even white people, actually, of the white people that I've come across to recognize that in racialized configuration, I was going to say themselves, but actually most white people are not self-aware to that level that they will recognize when they are experiencing racialized envy. Some are, I've met a few. Most are not. And there's a reason why people racialized as white are essentially blind to their own functioning. I'm going to end here. This will be a controversial note. I'd say quite common sense, really. And we can talk about that perhaps in the next episode. How did it sound? Did it sound okay? Did that make sense? Was it helpful? Let me know. Please get in touch. And I look forward to hearing from you. Until then, please take care.
subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to send us queries, questions and dilemmas to be reflected on, please email at work at racereflections.co.uk.